Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, let me also welcome those who are joining us online through Cato's live streaming. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the uh, Vice President for Legal Affairs at Cato and the founding director of uh, our now uh, Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for, um, for the 17th annual Constitution Day Symposium brought to you through the generosity of the late George M. Yeager, long a friend of Cato and of the Center for Constitutional Studies in particular. Again this year, we've got a full program for you looking at the most important decisions that the Supreme Court handed down last term, plus in our final panel, a look at the cases coming up uh, in, just, uh, in, in the term that begins just two weeks from today. Uh, for um, uh, a detailed uh, discussion of both, uh, we hope you enjoy the new 17th annual Cato Supreme Court review that you picked up on your way in. And for those of you viewing online, the new uh, review is, uh, I believe, today going um, online. And you can get it just simply by uh, going to the homepage, Cato. Uh, at org, cato.org, and find the review and past reviews uh, under publications. But uh, back to today's program, as usual, we'll uh, draw things uh, to a close today with Cato's 17th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought, uh, delivered this year by George Will, one of the nation's foremost syndicated columnists and long a student of the court. Uh, at the conclusion of that lecture, uh, please join us for a grand reception out in our winter garden just outside uh, the auditorium. Um, we hold this symposium each year uh, to mark the day 231 years ago when the Constitution's framers finished their work over that long, hot summer in Philadelphia and sent the document they'd just drafted out to the states for ratification. Reflecting a vision of liberty through limited government, the founders had set forth 11 years earlier in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union by securing liberty through such limited government. Much has happened over the years since then, of course, some of it good, like the completion of the Declaration's promise through the Civil War amendments, uh, some of it not so good, uh, like the major reinterpretations of the document that took place during the New Deal, which have given us the massive government we live under today. The critique of that uh, constitutional uh, inversion uh, has animated our work here at the Center for Constitutional Studies from its inception, and it'll be a constant theme throughout today's program. To give you an overview of the program, let me now introduce the man who's largely responsible for putting it together and for editing this review, Ilya Shapiro who will moderate this first panel, uh, is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and coordinator of Cato's highly regarded amicus brief program. He's a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and then practiced law first at Cleary Gottlieb, then at Patton Boggs. Just before joining Cato, Ilya served as a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. 
He's published widely, is a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. In 2015, the National Law Journal named Ilya to its list of 40 under 40 rising stars in the legal community. He's no longer eligible for that award. <laughs> I'll now turn the program over to Ilya. Uh, I'll return at the end of the day to introduce George Will and moderate the Q&A after his lecture. But for now, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. This is the 17th uh, Cato Constitution Day Conference and the 17th volume of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the nation's first in-depth critique of the term just ended, plus a look ahead at the term ahead. We release this journal uh, every year uh, on this date in conjunction with our symposium, less than three months after the previous term ends and just a couple of weeks before the next one begins. We're proud of the speed with which we publish this tome and of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's opinions allow. I'm particularly proud that this isn't a typical law review whose uh, submissions esoteric subject matter and uh, pedantic execution is only matched by its superfluous footnoting. <laughs> Instead, this is a book of essays on law intended for everyone from lawyers and judges to educated laymen and interested citizens. I want to thank Linda Asu and the conference staff, managing editor Trevor Burris, and my right-hand man and the, my other colleagues who have edited these uh, articles, Matt LaRosiere, who uh, was a legal associate already and stayed on. He's now a legal associate plus, I guess, make sure that the uh, trains are running on time. Neither the review nor the symposium would be possible without them. I reiterate our hope that this collection of essays will secure and advance the first principles of our Constitution giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not men. In so doing, we hope to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution is there to protect the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and serves as a bulwark against government abuse. In these heady times when the people feel betrayed by the elites, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. And now, our first panel is called The First Amendment and the Culture Wars. And that's exactly what we'll cover. When even a Supreme Court justice warns about the weaponized First Amendment, we have our work cut out for us. There were some big cases in this area this term, specifically regarding compelled speech in places as diverse as public sector employers, bakeries, and crisis pregnancy centers. Here to discuss these major free speech issues are three people well-versed in the field. You have their bios in your packets, so I'll just give a brief intro. Uh, first, David Forte is professor of law at Cleveland State University, where he was the inaugural holder of the Charles R. Emmerich Jr. Calfee, Halter, and Griswold endowed chair. He also held the position of consultor to the Pontifical Council for the Family under Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. During the Reagan administration, Forte served as chief counsel to the U.S. delegation to the United Nations and alternate delegate to the Security Council. See, I'm giving you all the interesting stuff, not the boring legal publications and all. Uh, he's also been a Civil War reenactor and a merit badge counselor for the Boy Scouts. Uh, David will cover Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. After that, we'll have 
Thomas C. Berg, the James L. Oberstar Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minnesota. Tom is the ideal person to cover Masterpiece Cake Shop because he's one of only three lawyers, in addition to uh, Douglas Laycock and me, to file briefs supporting both Jim Obergefell and Jack Phillips. Also like me, Tom got his JD from the University of Chicago and clerked on the Fifth Circuit. Unlike me, he was executive editor of the Law Review, won the Beale and Buston Prizes for Legal Scholarship, was musical director of the Law School Musical, and was a Rhodes Scholar. Tom is a leading scholar of law and religion, including as co-author of the case book, Religion and the Constitution. And then last but not least, we'll have Robert McNamara, a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. Bob litigates cutting edge constitutional cases protecting free speech, property rights, economic liberty, and other individual liberties. He also litigates in defense of innovation and entrepreneurship and medical care, and was co-counsel in Flynn versus Holder. IJ's landmark challenge to the federal prohibition on compensating bone marrow donors. Bob is a graduate of Boston University and NYU Law School, where he was a founding member and editor-in-chief of the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. And Bob will discuss NIFLA versus Becerra. All right, we'll start with David and come up here. Thank you. Good morning. Well, we have on this panel something unusual uh, in these discussions. Good news. We're the good news bears today. <clears throat> and I'm discussing the case of Janus versus AFSCME. And even within uh, Janus versus AFSCME, there are three uh, major, two major and one minor uh, good news nuggets to have. First, free speech took a step forward. Second, unaccountable independent agency-like power took a step back. And third, even for inveterate pessimists like Roger Pallone, a whiff of Lochnerism is coming back. So this case uh, overruled Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, which was decided in 1977. Now Abood in many of the textbooks is regarded as an advance of free speech, because in that case, the court held that union members or people who pay agency fees who are non-union members but part of the bargaining unit uh, were entitled not to have their dues or their agency fees taken to the extent that part of those dues or agency fees were dedicated to explicit political causes of the union. However, the notion of agency fee was affirmed in Abood and it was a precedent that held for 40 years, even though there was a prescient uh, concurrence by uh, Justice Powell who said, seems to me that any action under collective bargaining by a public union is by nature political. Well, after the years that Abood went on the books, the court's hundreds of cases were uh, embroiled in the discussion about what were chargeable expenses for when the union represents collective bargaining wages and other benefits for the non-union members within the bargaining unit, and what were non-chargeable expenses, that is, those that were for the union's particular political activities. Uh, and what the, court dis, uh, what the court found in Janus, what uh, Justice Alito found in Janus, and in two previous cases leading up to Janus, was that line was immensely difficult to define and was overwhelmingly difficult to fund for any non-union member who wanted to find out what the difference was between what was chargeable and not chargeable. So for example, 
with litigation expenses chargeable as political or non-political, where company picks, uh, union picnics chargeable as non-political. So, and and in t on top of that, the cases in between Abood and Janus had kept what was known as the opt-out option, namely that the non-union member uh, had to find out what the non-chargeable expense would be and then ask for it back. Uh, and that was just too hard a level for any practical uh, effect uh, to be able to affirm that core part of Abood, which was that political expenses could not be charged to non-union members or to, uh, uh, to new union members. Janus stands on three legs in overruling Abood. Number one, money is speech. There's no problem about that. Money talks and the First Amendment protects that kind of talk. We have that from Buckley versus Vallejo. And in fact, the dissenters, it was a five to four decision, didn't contest that at all. The second leg of this stool is that collective bargaining by public unions is by nature political speech. One cannot distinguish a decision by a public union and its employer from a political decision. So for example, teacher tenure, teacher assignments, um, uh, bathrooms, gender neutral bathrooms. All these are being discussed as, as part of bargaining between the collective bargaining unit and, uh, and, the, public, uh, and the public entity. And the third was that forcing non-union members of the, of the bargaining unit to pay for these bargaining um, results was compelled speech because money talks and they were being forced to fund a position that they did not agree with. The dissent focused on two things. The first was stare decisis, which I won't go into. Uh, in the article, I call it the stare decisis dance. Whenever it's, a, whenever it's a liberal or a conservative or a constitutional or anti-constitutional decision comes down to change what the constitutional law has been by the Supreme Court, the other side screams, stare decisis, you're, break, you're, you're breaking stare decisis. And then both sides go through the dance. Uh, was, was there reliance? Uh, was the original decision properly uh, decided? And so this happens in this case, and it doesn't need to concern us uh, at all. The second uh, point that the dissent tried to make was that collective bargaining speech is not protectable speech at all under the First Amendment. And they brought up the Pickering test. Now the Pickering test holds that speech by, by employees of public entities on a public issue is protectable unless this public issue speech also disrupts the workplace. And so the dissent said, even if it is public issue speech, namely the bargaining agreements that you have with the public entity, um, it, it would be disruptive to the workplace because you'd have non-union members who'd want a different union, they would have competing unions. Uh, and in this, actually, I think Justice Alito had the very best of arguments on this. Uh, he said, take a look at the Federal Employees Union. By law, and by law of 28 states, um, the Federal Employees Union is the exclusive representative of uh, federal workers in particular agencies. And they've had no trouble with competing unions. There's no disruption 
uh, going on in that. And 28 states do not allow compulsory agency fees, and there's no internal uh, disruption of the workplace. So the Pickering test was not a good, a good answer to the majority. The other part of the argument which Justice Kagan relied upon was she contested head on the idea that collective bargaining was political speech. She contested that entirely. And it was on that issue, I think, the nub of the case turned. So what Justice Alito pointed out was that beginning in 1959, when Wisconsin passed the first uh, collective bargaining permission for public unions uh, to, uh, to be legalized, uh, public union membership of Public, public workers, public sector workers, has grown significantly. So it is now 34.4%, whereas private unionization is 6% of the workforce. And in those states where public union representation is over 50%, Illinois, California, and New York, they're going down the hole financially because this is how the game works. The public unions spend a lot of money electing certain kinds of political candidates. Those political candidates get elected. And then these same people are on the opposite side of the bargaining table from the public union that elected them. Guess what? They're going to have large pensions. They're going to have large medical expenses. And so Illinois, as you know, is now in the tank economically because of this kind of reverse, I mean, a, a positive loop of elect and feed, elect and feed, and elect and feed. And so therefore, the entire budget, budgetary process of these three states has been thrown out of whack because of the influence of public unions. So simply quantitatively, as well as qualitatively because of the particular issues that public unions decide, quantitatively, this shows that these are essentially political decisions. The other point that uh, Justice uh, Alito made was that when a union member attempts to try to find out, excuse me, when a non-union member attempts to find out the line between chargeable and non-chargeable expenses, he did not say this explicitly, but it's quite implicit in his decision. There's actually a violation of due process because he is not able to find the legal line. It is so difficult to find. There's no law of the land principle. There's no de definitive, it's, it's void for vagueness. There's no law of the land principle where he could, uh, a worker can determine what is truly a chargeable from a non-chargeable offense. And also there's lack of notice. The union often didn't give notice as to what the chargeable and non-chargeable offenses are. So lastly, we have the compelled speech issue. And in this, it seems to me, Alito had, was the strongest part of his opinion. Because what he said was, and this leads to issues like Cake Master, he said the worst part of forcing someone to pay for a political cause is not only it violates all the precedents that we have from um, Gabaitis and Woolley versus Maynard on the impermissibility of government enforced compelled speech. Not only does it do that, but it forces a man to act a person to act contrary to his conscience. Now by doing that, by, by putting that as a conscience right, he grounds it in the most fundamental aspect of liberty that's entrenched in the Constitution. 
So finally, what did Justice Kagan answer in, in response? You're weaponizing, as Ilya pointed out, you're weaponizing the First Amendment. Weaponizing the First Amendment. The see, you're using, Justice Kagan says, the First Amendment as a cudgel to attempt to advance your economic free enterprise view of the Constitution. Really? Well, now Justice Breyer, as Bob points out in his article, also said in the Becerra case that you are Lochnerizing the First Amendment. So weaponizing the First So now we see something really significant, that the so-called liberals on the court have a paradigm in their mind, a paradigm in their mind that there's the pre-1938 court trying to come up from the ashes. And, and they're weaponizing the, the Constitution to do that. They don't have a sense of what the Constitution actually means. All they think of it as the court as a political body, forcing one kind of, of policy over the other. And that is truly a shame. And we see it now in the Kavanaugh hearings as well. It's truly a deep shame. Now, here's the whiff of Lochner. <laughs> and I'm surprised Kagan didn't grab onto this. In a footnote, Justice Alito says, well, in answering a, a very bad originalist argument on the other side, namely that the framers never thought that unions should have free speech. There were no unions in 1787. Right? Um, and Alito points that out. He, he also says, said that freedom of contract Free, he uses words. Freedom of contract was constitutional by the framers. And he cites a, a Lochner case in the, in the era of Lochner to affirm that. And he cites that. Now he says, now we're not saying we should go back to an economic view of the country. We're not saying that. We're just saying. But he puts it in as originalist point of view. So he actually puts this, this, this is the first time I've seen this in decades that a justice actually puts as authoritative a Lochner-era decision and cites it. Um, so that's the good news, and it's really good news. Oh, the independent agency rule. Uh, so what this does, so compelled speech is good news. Independent, unaccountable uh, agency uh, 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 pulling down, excuse me, redoes, is good news because what when you think of it, Public sector unions were independent agencies. They were making policy without accountability. People have been members of unions, both private and public, for generations, for decades, without ever having a vote to say whether it should be. So it's a completely unaccountable kind of, kind of function, and they were making policy. So this pulls that back uh, once more. But the bad news is as follows. By the dissent claiming that this was Merely a mechanism, a contrivance to use. Can imagine, use the First Amendment like they, he did, she didn't say this, but she meant it like they used the due process clause as if some kind of excuse to enforce an economic policy. She has, thank you, she, she has laid the groundwork for looking at the Supreme Court decisions as affirmed by the, by the, the way Kavanaugh's was attacked um, uh, during the main hearings. Supreme Court decisions as purely political, not legal. 
and not constitutional. And as we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings, I fully expect now that when a Supreme Court decision comes down affirming free speech rights, economic rights, that there will be resistance, legitimized resistance, not only to, to the immigration policies, but to an actual decision of the Supreme Court like we haven't seen since Brown versus Board of Education. And that's going to be the bad news. But besides that, we made three steps forward in the Janus case. Thanks a lot. I should announce that anyone tweeting about uh, this, which you're welcome to, please use the hashtag CatoScotus. So there you go. All right, well, it's a pleasure to uh, participate in this symposium and in the uh, issue on the 2017-18 term. I'm speaking and writing about Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, which, as you know, gave First Amendment protection to a baker who refused to design and create a custom cake celebrating a same-sex wedding. Uh, Ilya has already stolen my opening line. Uh, uh, I was going to talk about how uh, Doug Laycock and I and he were the only three people in the country who got the issue right of uh, same-sex marriage and religious liberty. But he's already pointed that out. But I'm very happy to be here uh, in the place uh, where... Uh, and Cato is the only organization, to be clear, because you yeah. had different clients in the different cases. That's, that's, that's right. Yeah, Cato is the only organization. So um, I'll say a, uh, more in a little bit about why we should protect uh, both sets of claims. Uh, my article and, uh, in the review and my presentation argue that the masterpiece decision is or may be for religious objectors to same-sex marriage what Romer versus Evans was for gay rights claims back in 1996. So I'll explain that, but let me start off by saying, as you probably know, the court's opinion in masterpiece ducked the broad issues in the case, or many of the broad issues in the case, like whether requiring Phillips to design the cake for the same-sex couple unconstitutionally compelled him to speak, and whether there is a compelling interest in requiring service by a commercial provider, uh, even when many alternative providers are available in the Masterpiece case, another bakery within one-tenth of a mile of Jack Phillips's Masterpiece cake shop. Instead, the court ruled that the state commission adjudicating Phillips's case had showed impermissible hostility in the circumstances of the adjudication to his religious beliefs in male-female-only marriage. The question now is whether Masterpiece will be confined narrowly to cases of hostility or whether it presages broader protection for religious dissenters whose beliefs clash with sexual orientation non-discrimination laws. That very process happened with gay rights. First, a narrow ruling condemning government hostility in a particular instance, then ultimately broader recognition of a liberty. The narrow ruling was Romer versus Evans, which held that Colorado's Amendment 2 barred such a wide range of gay rights protections that it showed, in the court's view, a bare desire to harm gays and lesbians. 
The Romer opinion avoided de uh, declaring sexual orientation discrimination a suspect classification or even semi-suspect, triggering uh, equal protection heightened scrutiny. The court again ducked that question, again relying on finding uh, animus in 2013 when it struck down a section of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. Only when the court ruled definitively for same-sex marriage rights in 2015 in Obergefell did it change focus from government's alleged anti-gay animus to gay couples' fundamental right to marry. So let me trace the parallels between Masterpiece and Rover, and then I'll do some other things at the end of the talk. The first parallel is in the narrowness of the two holdings. We've seen how Romer was narrow, uh, focusing on this, this law is so bad, this amendment is so bad that it shows a bare desire to harm. So at first glance was Masterpiece, also narrow. The court there found hostility from the commissioners based on two pieces of evidence. First, two uh, state commissioners on the Civil Rights Commission had directly displayed hostility towards Phillips' traditionalist position on marriage, calling it despicable uh, and drawing comparisons to slavery and the Holocaust. Now, this part of the ruling, although I think totally defensible, is easy to evade, like any other decision that's based on ex subjective expressions of intent, sort of smoking gun statements, future adjudicators can simply be silent about their hostility to conservative beliefs while still letting it drive their decisions. The second evidence of hostility was that the state commission had previously allowed three other bakers to refuse to provide a cake with an anti-gay message requested by a fundamentalist Christian customer. The commission said that refusing the cake opposing same-sex marriage did not discriminate against the customer's religious belief, but that refusing the cake celebrating a same-sex marriage did discriminate against the same-sex couple. The state used flatly inconsistent reasoning in the two cases, and our amicus brief cataloged the, uh, the litany of inconsistent reasoning. But for example, it attributed the celebratory message of the wedding cake to the gay couple, not the baker. But it suggested that the anti-gay cake's message would be attributed to the bakers, and therefore they could object. Now, the court noted that reasoning, but what makes mas uh, that inconsistency in reasoning, but what makes Masterpiece a narrow opinion for the moment is that the majority opinion did not go to the point of saying the two uh, uh, cases, the two sets of cases, were irreconcilable. Three justices, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, did say that. They said the consistency required protecting both sets of bakers. But others in the majority refrained from going that far. Breyer and Kagan, who actually made up a seven-vote majority for the result in the case, actually said those two sets of cases could be distinguished. It's just that the commission had failed to do so, and it's failed to focus on the obvious distinction between the two cases was yet another evidence of its hostility to Phillips's belief. And then uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy were silent on whether there was any way to uh, uh, reconcile the two sets of cases, those protected bakers and Phillips. Uh, 
They didn't say they, they could be reconciled. They didn't say they couldn't. They were just silent about it. As such, the majority opinion, which depended on Roberts and Kennedy, was self-consciously narrow. Let's not say any more than we absolutely have to. The second parallel in the two cases is the likely motivation for ruling. In both animus or hostility served as a minimalist holding that avoided committing to broad implications for future cases. Romer likely found animus in Colorado rather than declaring heightened scrutiny because the latter declaration would risk getting too far ahead of public opinion in 1996, for example, suggesting at that relatively early stage a right to same-sex marriage, which might trigger a backlash uh, like that that had happened with abortion rights, for example. Similar considerations likely explain what Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice did in the masterpiece opinion. This was the court's first post-Obergefell confrontation with the clash between gay marriage and religious liberty, and the swing justices, at least, wanted to proceed cautiously even while protecting a religious objector. But the next parallel with Romer is this. The specific finding of unequal hostile treatment in masterpiece may well mature into broader protection for religious objectors. Like Colorado, other states will be unwilling to require socially liberal vendors to produce goods with conservative religious messages they find offensive or against their conscience. Those states then cannot require religiously conservative vendors to produce goods in violation of their conscience. Now, in Masterpiece, the four liberal justices, including, uh, as I said, Breyer and Kagan, argued that the cases of the two sets of cases, Phillips and the protected bakers, were different. The protected bakers would not have sold an anti-gay cake to anyone with a, a cake with that message, which was from the book of Leviticus. But Phillips would sell wedding cakes to opposite-sex couples, just not same-sex couples. But as Gorsuch, joined by Alito and Thomas, explained, this distinction depends on manipulating the level of generality of the analysis. An anti-gay cake is distinguished only by what it displays on the outer surface, the message. So the category is not cakes or wedding cakes, but cakes with particular messages. And a wedding cake can communicate messages too. If a same-sex couple wants a cake with two grooms, two brides, a rainbow, or any other common indicator of same-sex marriage, that is a cake that Phillips would not sell to anybody. And even without such symbols, a custom-designed cake tailored to the features and desires of the particular couple, as Phillips were, inevitably involves the baker in devoting his skills to sending and crafting a message celebrating the relationship. Uh, the uh, implication there is that it was compelled speech, uh, and I think that, that, that the court's ruling on free exercise uh, is, is very close to accepting, uh, or, or at least Thomas Alito and Gorsuch uh, are very close to accepting a straight-up compelled speech argument. Thomas does explicitly. All right, I want to talk about a fourth parallel then between Romer and Masterpiece. Having talked about how Masterpiece might uh, mature into broader protection, uh, uh, I want to talk about uh, the narrow ground on which the court uh, proceeded. Writing narrowly and cautiously, finding animus in the immediate case, as both opinions did, has its own costs. 
To do so, the court must denounce the decision makers there as especially unjustified, even malicious, bad. That denunciation can cause equal or greater anger compared with a broader holding, such as declaring a suspect classification or fundamental right. Religious traditionalists certainly took offense at Romer's conclusion that they held animus towards gays and lesbians. Uh, they echoed Justice Scalia's dissent, which charged that the majority had, quote, verbally disparaged traditional attitudes as bigotry, end quote, in a way that was, as Scalia said, nothing short of insulting. Now, Masterpiece has accused left progressive officials of intolerance toward religious conservatives, and progressives have likewise taken offense. One commentator excoriated the court for an utterly, uh, quote, an utterly absurd finding of supposed religious animus. Another said the court had, quote, assiduously labored to find government hostility based on tepid evidence of a slip up by a public official. Masterpiece put the shoe on the other foot and progressives dislike how it feels. Now, uh, I have a certain degree of pleasure in seeing the shoe on the other foot, but I have doubts that ruling calling, rulings that call out animus on either side are helpful in our present circumstances. The nation is deeply entrenched in a state of negative polarization, where each side cares more about attacking the other than advancing a coherent, a coherent vision of its own. Labeling the contenders in a social, cultural, political dispute as bigots either way will likely inflame rather than calm the situation. It will simply accelerate the current vicious cycle of charges and countercharges. For that reason, I argue in the peace courts ought to rely less on debatable conclusions of animus. Instead, they should bite the bullet and apply heightened scrutiny, both to claims of sexual orientation discrimination by government and to claims of religious freedom against non-discrimination laws. I've argued for several years now in a variety of forums that there are important parallels between these two constitutional claims. Both same-sex couples and religious objectors seek to protect a wide-ranging feature of personal identity, whether that is loving commitment to a life partner or faithfulness to the demands of the, of the divine creator. And they seek to live out that identity in conduct, not just in private spaces, in the closet or in church, but also in public spaces, whether it's participating in the institution of civil marriage or following one's faith in charitable activity in the commercial workplace. Like these parallels, the rationales for heightened scrutiny rely not primarily on the bad motives or bad character of the government regulators, but rather on the serious interests and predicaments of those harmed by the regulation. Same-sex couples who cannot change their orientation and find an opposite sex partner, religious objectors who cannot simply discard their deep beliefs. Heightened scrutiny would better express and cultivate sympathy for their respective predicaments. Now, I can imagine the court adopting uh, some kind of close scrutiny for an increasing range of free exercise objections, especially where the government has protected an analogous secular objection, as in Masterpiece. That would require adopting a religion protective reading of the 1990 decision, Employment Division versus Smith, 
which many people wrongly take to have eliminated all claims for free exercise protection against facially neutral laws. I can say more about that in the questions and answers if you want. Reading Smith in a protective way would honor the fact that religious identity is not only important to believers, but is an interest enshrined in the Constitution's text. Under strict scrutiny, let me quickly say there's a strong case for an objector in the particular circumstances of Jack Phillips. Situations, primarily, but not only weddings, where the objector provides personal services directly to facilitate the marriage and other providers are readily available. Such limited protection for religious objectors means that same-sex couples will occasionally be referred elsewhere and may feel insulted and demeaned. And that is a cost. But without such an exemption, conscientious objectors like Phillips must permanently surrender either their conscience or their livelihood. That permanent harm outweighs the real but short-term dignitary harm to same-sex couples. A narrow exception to gay rights laws in this setting hopes the best, holds the best hope of protecting both sides. Thank you. still thinking about Masterpiece, Tom, I want to ask you kind of the question on everyone's mind, I think, uh, when this came down, which is why did the court rule in this way? Because clearly it's not a punt for very long. The, the, case, the, the issue isn't going away. And they didn't have to take the case if they didn't want, weren't prepared to, to rule uh, on the, uh, the, the big issues that were presented. Is it simply that Kennedy was retiring, didn't want to annoy half the people regardless, and we three were not a big enough constituency to please? Yeah, I, I can't imagine why that we weren't enough. But uh, uh, yeah, I think Kennedy just had a failure of nerve uh, on wanting to disappoint either side dramatically uh, and uh, looking to uh, apparently to his retirement. Um, he just wasn't willing to go out with what, you know, some, somebody would call on either side a tarnishment of his uh, legacy. I call it a failure of nerve. And on that note. Um, Someone who speaks without notes and so clearly does not have failures of nerve. I have many other failures, but generally not of nerve. Uh, thanks very much to the Cato Institute for the invitation. Thanks for all of you for being here. I'm Bob McNamara. I'm a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. And I'm here today to talk about Nifla v. Becerra, which for my money is the sleeper blockbuster case of the last Supreme Court term. Uh, most people, when they talk about NIFLA, talk about it as the crisis pregnancy center case or as the abortion case. Uh, and it is actually much more important and exciting than that. Uh, it's rare to say that a case that is about abortion rights is underplayed in the media. Uh, but this case has been underplayed in the media, and I want to talk a little bit about why. Uh, most of the reason why stems back to a case from the 1980s called Low v. SEC. And the question in Lowe v. SEC was whether the federal government could regulate uh, the publication of books about securities advice uh, under the statutes regulating investment advice. And the Supreme Court disposed of the question fairly easily, just as a statutory matter. Statutes don't require registration just to publish a book about securities advice or about commodities advice. But Justice White disagreed. Justice White said the statutes clearly reached this conduct, and he wrote a concurring opinion saying that it would violate the First Amendment for the government to require someone to register simply before publishing a book. Okay, so far, that's clearly correct. But Justice White went on, as he was wont to do, uh, to say that uh, 
the way you do the analysis in this area is publishing a book is clearly protected by the First Amendment, but some speech uh, is not. Some speech where the speaker is really using specialized knowledge to take his client's affairs into his own hands is the speech of a professional, and that is outside the First Amendment. Uh, that is the last the Supreme Court had to say. Uh, Justice White's concurrence was never cited favorably by the Supreme Court, indeed by any member of the Supreme Court, uh, but it proceeded for the next 30 years to create a tremendous amount of mischief and confusion in the lower courts. Uh, circuit courts began developing what they called a professional speech doctrine along the lines of what Justice White suggested. Uh, carving out an exception for speech that affected economic regulation or occupational licensing, breaking that off from ordinary First Amendment analysis. Uh, and there are a couple problems with the, with the professional speech doctrine, the first of which is that it's kind of intellectually incoherent at the outset. Uh, under that idea, the, the speech I'm giving right now would be protected by the First Amendment, uh, and the Q&A session would probably be protected by the First Amendment unless anyone's questions got too specific, and then I would no longer be speaking. Um, that seems wrong. That seems like an unadministrable rule. Uh, and it also seems unadministrable to draw the lines around what is a professional, uh, which is exactly what we saw in the lower courts. At the Institute for Justice, we saw the professional speech doctrine invoked uh, against tour guides. Uh, we saw the professional speech doctrine invoked against John Rosemond, a syndicated advice columnist whose column, uh, written in the Dear Abby style, gave parenting advice and was syndicated to a newspaper in Kentucky drawing a cease and desist letter from the Kentucky Attorney General, uh, insisting that Dr. Rosemond cease and desist the unlicensed practice of psychology in the form of publishing his newspaper advice column, because that was professional speech. Uh, the Fourth Circuit uh, held that the professional speech doctrine applied to fortune tellers, the traditional professions of doctors, <laughs> lawyers, and fortune tellers. Um, <laughs> And what we saw is essentially what you see anytime someone discerns a new exception to the First Amendment, which is government lawyers and lower courts take it and run as far as they possibly can with it. Uh, any chink in the armor of the First Amendment is immediately exploited and exploited to the fullest. Um, and so this brings us to the NIFLA case itself. And what was going on in the NIFLA case is California had passed a law uh, governing what are called crisis pregnancy centers, pro-life centers that provide certain services to pregnant women with the avowed aim of steering those women away from abortions. Uh, there's huge controversy about these centers. People who support abortion rights say that they are deceptive, that they are tricking women out of uh, using their constitutionally protected rights. People who support these centers say they're doing exactly what pro-life advocates should do and provide services in lieu of the abortions they oppose. And many states have tried to regulate them to force certain disclosure requirements. And California required uh, disclosure of any center that was unlicensed, uh, requiring them to disclose in a number of languages on any advertisement, no matter how brief the advertisement, what their status was. And it required uh, any center that had a license from the state uh, to post prominently information about where their customers could obtain a state-subsidized abortion. These regulations were similar to those that had been passed by other states, and they had mostly fared poorly in the courts. Not uniformly, some restrictions are upheld, some are struck down, uh, but when the NIFLA case got to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit said, wait a minute, why is everyone doing ordinary First Amendment advice, or First Amendment analysis? These centers have a license from the state. This must be professional speech. 
Now note how far we are from Justice White's original suggestion of professional speech. Um, Justice White's idea of the professional speech doctrine, uh, to the extent it was fully formed, was a doctrine regulating people's advice uh, and control of their clients' lives and financial affairs. Uh, this was premised simply on the idea that these centers held a license from the state and did things that seemed like they rhymed with medical services, like they provided certain medical services, and therefore they could be regulated. They could be forced to disclose the state's preferred message um, without meeting strict scrutiny. The Ninth Circuit frankly acknowledged this is a content-based compelled speech. Uh, this would ordinarily get strict scrutiny. There's no question this isn't content-based. But we're not going to use strict scrutiny because this is speech by professionals, by people who hold a license from the state. Now, if that's the law, a lot of people are in trouble because a lot of people hold a license from the state. Uh, in the 1950s, about one in 20 Americans needed a license from the government uh, in order to do their work. Today, that number has roughly quintupled, uh, which means if people who hold a license from the state or need a license from the state are outside the First Amendment, the First Amendment is getting really small. And so these are the stakes when the case gets to the US Supreme Court, is what exactly does the First Amendment cover? And the US Supreme Court, addressing the question uh, for the first time as a, as a body and addressing the question in any way for the first time in 30 years, roundly rejected the professional speech doctrine. The Supreme Court reiterated what the court has said seemingly every two years since US v. Stevens, which is that there aren't new exceptions to the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects speech. To the extent speech is unprotected, uh, the court has already announced and told us what categories of speech are unprotected. Lower courts are not empowered to invent new categories in the absence of historical evidence that speech was considered unprotected. And there is no historical evidence that the speech of professionals, whoever they may be, was considered outside the scope of the First Amendment. Indeed, uh, quite to the contrary, the speech of professionals should be perfectly protected. The idea of reducing protection for professionals on the grounds, as the Ninth Circuit had said, that they have specialized knowledge is essentially saying that we have to allow greater regulation of the speech of professionals because they know too much. Their speech is too persuasive. People might believe them. But that's exactly the kind of speech that the First Amendment is for, persuasive speech that might change someone's mind, that might influence their decisions. That's why we talk in the first place. Uh, I'm hoping to change minds. I'm hoping people will agree with me. I'm hoping they will take my advice. Uh, and so the court roundly rejected the professional speech doctrine, and in so doing, rejected uh, essentially the uniform practice in the circuit courts. There was an active circuit split on the professional speech doctrine, but the circuit split really was whether professional speech got intermediate scrutiny or rational basis review. No circuit court had ever said, wait a minute, uh, the Supreme Court told us to stop making up new exceptions to the First Amendment. We should maybe stop making up new exceptions to the First Amendment. The holding of NIFLA is stop making up new exceptions to the First Amendment. Um, and with that out of the way, the court's majority opinion makes relatively short work of California's disclosure requirements. Um, mandatory, disclosure, mandatory signs bearing the state's preferred message untethered to uh, anything deceptive about what the centers are doing or anything specific about the centers themselves fails under strict scrutiny. Uh, and similarly, the state had failed to put forward any evidence that the scope of the disclosures required by the disclosure for unlicensed centers uh, was necessary, was tailored in any way. And so that failed as well. Um, 
This holding prompted a, a lengthy and stirring dissent from Justice Breyer, lamenting that the court's decision rejecting the professional speech doctrine would imperil uh, all manner of economic and social regulation. Uh, once again, invoking the specter of Lochner, as is so common in Justice Breyer's opinions in First Amendment cases. And Two things really jump out at me about Justice Breyer's dissent. Uh, one is the, the suggestion that the, the decision in NIFLA imperils a huge array of social and economic regulation. Uh, when all the majority opinion in NIFLA does is demand the state provide a certain amount of evidence supporting its speech restrictions before it suppresses protected speech. Uh, it seems to me that if the regulatory state requires the government to be able to suppress protected speech in the absence of any evidence in support of its suppression, so much the worse for the regulatory state. Uh, which seems to be the, the main problem with Justice Breyer's broader objections to rejecting the professional speech doctrine. I am always curious to find uh, regulations that people find absolutely essential that also cannot be supported by any evidence in a court of law. Uh, those seem like conflicting things, and I'm very interested to know what regulations people think will fall uh, if they are asked to provide any evidence in support of them. Um, Justice Breyer doesn't actually cite any, but the dissent appears to believe that there are many such regulations. Um, so where does this leave us? This strikes down these particular, well, this, the case is at the preliminary injunction stage, but it effectively strikes down the disclosure requirements California has in place for crisis pregnancy centers. But why does this matter? Why is this a blockbuster case outside the confines of crisis pregnancy centers themselves? And it's a blockbuster case because the professional speech doctrine itself uh, was and remains a lurking danger in American constitutional law. And it's not just a danger for crisis pregnancy centers. It's not just a danger for tour guides. Uh, it's not just a danger for fortune tellers, uh, well protected though they should be. Uh, it's a danger for all of us because it is a danger to the internet. Uh, the internet every year provides us with a new startup company whose service amounts to providing us with information. Uh, we each of us have today, sitting in this room at our fingertips, a wealth of information that would be unavailable to us 40 years ago without retaining a licensed professional. Information about the value of our homes, information about basic legal forms, information about basic financial advice, uh, all given to us uh, without paying licensed professionals through the power of technology. Uh, but licensed professionals don't like it when the power of technology horns in on their turf. Uh, and a good concrete example of this is going on right now in the state of Mississippi. There's a small startup in Mississippi called Visalign. What Visalign does is it uses the power of satellite imaging to take formal legal descriptions of properties, uh, meets and bounds they're called, uh, and when a bank writes a loan on a piece of property, uh, Visalign has software that will take the legal description of the property and overlay it on a satellite image of the area so that a bank loan officer can actually look at a map of what they're writing a loan on. Uh, it's done entirely by technology, and it has drawn a lawsuit from the state of Mississippi uh, alleging that Visalign, the software, is engaged in the unlicensed practice of surveying. Uh, Mississippi has sued, demanding that they cease and desist surveying, and that they disgorge every single dime they have earned in the state of Mississippi, notwithstanding the fact that literally none of their institutional clients has complained. Um, they're actually quite happy to continue getting these maps. 
What does the NIFLA decision mean? The NIFLA decision means that the occupational licensing boards who get angry about technology chipping away at their turf no longer have the professional speech doctrine to take them outside of the First Amendment. Uh, they no longer have the power to eliminate ordinary First Amendment scrutiny and ordinary demands for evidence in support of their restrictions before they clamp down on speech. Speech restrictions have to be the last resort not the first resort, is what the court has consistently told us. And what we see from how licensing boards behave is that speech restrictions are all too often the very first resort, uh, the first thing they grab. And this ultimately, and I will close on this, uh, brings us to the idea of what the First Amendment is. Uh, there have been a lot of accusations thrown around this term, some stemming from the court, some stemming from the press, about the danger of weaponizing the First Amendment. The First Amendment is, is not a weapon. The First Amendment is a shield. Visalign doesn't come to anyone's house and hit them over the head with the First Amendment. The First Amendment is a shield that speakers, that entrepreneurs, that individuals can hold when the government comes to them. And the best thing about a shield is that when necessary, you can hit people with it. Thank you all very much for your time. All right. Uh, when you said Visalign, I, I thought of that um, in, Invisalign, you know, the, the, uh, the braces that you can't see. So I thought Visalign was just some clever orthodontist trying to, you know. Anyway. Um, do any of the panelists have anything to say about the other cases or, or follow-ups about the First Amendment generally before we open it up to the crowd? All right, let's, uh, let's take some questions, and we have some ground rules. So first of all, wait to be called on, wait for the mic, uh, and if you care to, identify yourself in any affiliation. Let's go right over there. Wait for the mic, please. And then we'll go over here after that. Yeah, Pat uh, Spann, just, just myself. I, I have to confess I'm not a lawyer. And the, uh, but I sourced an article today that just fits in perfectly. There was supposedly in Montgomery County, right over here to our west, there was a, a Hindu gentleman that twice a day prays outside and burns a little incest stick. And Montgomery County has f fined him, I guess $500 fined, for, because the neighbor complained they don't like the smell of the incense. And I'm just wondering if I, the panel could, uh, supposedly the county executive threw out the case when he got, when the heat came on. I guess the guy got a lawyer, but I wouldn't. If you guys could comment on that, it just—it seems like really feeds into what you're talking about about the extreme extremism of um, local government or governments to go after a guy because a neighbor says that twice a day smelling incense bothers them. I always wonder what a, what a barbecue would do, but. Now, none of you are uh, candidates for judicial office, so I'm going to ask you to actually uh, answer the hypothetical, please. <laughs> I, mean, I think one, one thing that is kind of heartening about that example is exactly what one hopes when one does constitutional law, which is a, a higher level of government looked at that citation and threw it out. Uh, I think what, at least what my mission in life is and what I hope to achieve is that when these things happen, uh, a senior level of government looks at them and says, oh God, what if he gets a lawyer? Um, you, it, with the proper standard of review in place and with proper judicial review, you can eliminate a lot of things without litigation, and that is mostly, I think, the the proper role and mission of constitutional law is to set these boundaries in the hopes that government officials actually start obeying them and coloring inside the lines. Yeah, the, the, the law, um, if, if the local government had pressed it, 
it, it might have won because under the uh, Oregon uh, precedent, you have a generic rule which says you cannot disturb the uh, repose of other people. And uh, so this, this man is, if he were burning tires, it would have the same kind of problem. In Unless his defense, Maryland has a RIFRA, which I don't know about. If, yeah, yeah if, I, if I remember correctly, Maryland has a Religious Freedom Restoration huh. Act, one of the statutes passed after the Smith case to restore some higher uh, scrutiny. Right. So we, un, unless, unless there's a statutory protection, which would protect particularly religious expression, um, under, this, under the bare-bones Supreme Court precedent, the uh, Hindu uh, uh, burning of the incense would have some difficulty. All right, I saw a hand here, and then I saw a hand back there somewhere, so that'll be somewhere next. And uh, if anybody uh, wants to tweet questions at me, just use hashtag CatoScotus. I'm at iShapiro, but I should be able just to pick up the hashtag anyway. Sir. Yes, <clears throat> I'm Ahmed Dean Ahmed from the Minaret of Freedom Institute. My question is for, for Professor Berg. Uh, you focused on the, uh, the, uh, the question of whether uh, the decision would be narrowly focused on animosity or broadened into protection of a fundamental right. I would like to ask you to invite you to address a slightly different question, which is, is the court going to be consistent on the question of animosity? In particular, I'm looking at how the uh, question of the travel ban was treated in contrast to the Masterpiece Cake de decision. Uh, so I'm on record as criticizing the court's travel ban decision. Uh, so I think I can comment on what I said there without prejudging a case, even if I weren't a nominee. Uh, yeah, I- According I, to nominee precedent, According yes. to, yes, nominee, nominee settled law. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, Yes, I think, I mean, you can distinguish the travel ban case from Masterpiece in, a, in various ways. You could distinguish it the way the court did based on it being the immigration setting where there's special executive deference. You could distinguish it on the basis that, uh, you know, Trump's statement of hostility were clearer than, uh, than the, even the adjudicators in Masterpiece. There are various ways to cut this either way. Uh, I think we have a problem, though, uh, right now uh, it, it, with religious liberty claims is that the two sides in this polarized debate tend to have more sympathy for the claims, much more sympathy for the claims of their side and very little sympathy for the claims of the other side. I think the court could have struck a blow against that by... Uh, ruling the same way in both cases. And that would have been an important statement, not just about, uh, about anti-Muslim hostility, but about our tendency to favor the religious claims that we like and uh, disfavor the ones that we don't like. David? At bottom, there's a constitutional interpretive issue here of first moment. And that is, to what extent should the court recognize the individual personal motivations of the lawgiver as determining the purpose of the law. Uh, in many, in many uh, former cases, uh, all the way from McArdle, which is a 19th century case, the court attempted to distinguish between motivations and purpose, and I think that's very healthy. So, for example, if you have a statute passed by Congress, a, a law passed by Congress, I know it only occasionally happens, but if you have a statute passed by Congress, um, and you have 437, is that the number now? 437, I think, right? 
Well, we got District of Columbia. Uh, I thought we added two. Anyway, 435, I'll take that. Um, the motivations for each uh, member of Congress may be quite different. It may be because of campaign contribution. What we need to find out, which the court did, I think, in the, in the uh, so-called Muslim ban case, I think correctly, is it looked at the purpose of the law according to statutory determinants rather than looking at the psychological impetus that might have led to the law. Otherwise, you get the court into armchair psychology, and I don't think the court should be there. Sir uh, just, just a surreply, yeah. I mean, the, although the rule in equal protection cases is that if the government is uh, actuated by the motive of trying to discriminate against a racial group, this is the ruling of Washington versus Davis, Arlington Heights, Hunter versus Underwood, a uh, case about Alabama and discrimination against blacks motivated by racial animus, uh, that, that can be struck struck down, uh, and I think you could apply that to, uh, to religious intent as well. Th this is not a case where you have a multi-member body. This is one person's intent at issue, and I think it was actually pretty clear. The question from those cases, Washington versus Davis and Arlington Heights, is would we have this policy in the absence of the discriminatory intent behind it? And I would say that in the case of the travel ban, we wouldn't have had that, uh, that adopted if it weren't for the intent. Um, David has asked for a sir, sir reply. I'm going to exercise discretion by denying that motion, although I will mention that I'm surprised that none of you have mentioned what I actually think is the biggest distinguishing uh, component or the reason why Roberts uh, wrote the majority opinion in the travel ban case as he did, which is uh, national security and foreign policy versus domestic uh, enforcement. Uh, those are generally treated exactly differently. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, you should have said it earlier when you had free reign. And that, like I said, you can distinguish it very, you know, various ways, yeah. Uh, I think I saw a hand back there previously, and it wasn't you. You're a new hand. Well, we can go to you anyway. Let's go to this guy right here. Hey, gents, Gregory T. Angelo with Log Cabin Republicans. Uh, this question is for Mr. Berg, and uh, perhaps, Ilya, if you'd like to chime in, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective as well. I'm just a simple moderator. Okay, very well. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's masterpiece decision, all of these gay advocates on the left said, the Supreme Court has just created a license to discriminate. Gay people can now be denied services at restaurants, uh, any retail establishment, which is, of course, absurd on its face. The ruling was a very narrow one and one that I personally happen to agree with. Um, but if you are correct, Mr. Berg, that Masterpiece is really the, the preface here and that we are likely to see a much more expansive ruling in favor of religious liberty, what would the acceptable limits be on the ability of people to cite their religious convictions to deny services to people? We have precedent with the Piggy Park decision, um, but would it be possible, I'm proposing a hypothetical here, but for a uh, chef to deny a meal to a same-sex couple celebrating their wedding anniversary, for example? Yeah, so, right, thank you. For, let me, I mean, let me be clear about that. I, I do not ever expect even a, you know, sort of strong conservative majority on the court to declare broad exemptions in the commercial sphere. Uh, the... The case of, uh, of Phillips and the, and the cake involves uh, a, a, a sort of personal kind of services, personal artistic services directed specifically at the wedding. 
and where there's a variety of other providers immediately available. Uh, the, um, the masterpiece opinion is clear, and I, and, and I, I can, can't imagine any conservative majority holding differently that the, you can't have a long list of refusals, the court says, because that would indeed create a, a community-wide stigma against gays and lesbians. What I think is, is uh, when I say the opinion is likely to lead to, um, or may well lead to broader protection, is when is protection triggered in the first place? In other words, in Masterpiece, it's because the commissioners said a couple of nasty things and they had these immediate cases of the, going the other way, bakers refusing case, cakes uh, 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 on si very similar circumstances. I think that there will be more, uh, that the, 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 the set of triggering circumstances for close scrutiny will probably expand. It won't be limited if, if we have a court with the majority that I think we'll have going forward. It won't be limited to those cases of hostility. Um, but that, even with that, there remains a compelling interest in preventing discrimination purely on the basis of status. Uh, I think in almost any case of serving in a restaurant, uh, refusing to serve people in a restaurant, you're not refusing to serve them because of any close nexus to the objectionable behavior, the behavior to which you object, the, or, the, or the, you know, the event to which you object. That is much closer to refusing service to black people at your restaurant, and I don't expect the court to ever go there, nor, nor should it. But I do think close scrutiny will be, and probably should be, and should be triggered in a wider range of circumstances than just this case of... of so, so in effect, you're saying the, the free speech claim is much stronger than the religion claim, and it's all about whether a message is being forced to be compelled? Uh, yes, although I, I can imagine, uh, I mean, I, I do think there's a whole set of other cases about uh, nonprofits. Uh, the, the, in the commercial sphere, we have a particularly strong notion, and, and libertarians will disagree with this, but we have a particularly strong notion that people should not be refused service, uh, that, that the law should, uh, should limit that. Uh, uh, in the nonprofit sphere, though, uh, you know, you are now starting to get much more to the heart of uh, religious exercise. Uh, what about uh, Catholic Charities Adoption Agencies, which is now a, a very live controversy? Uh, Masterpiece has given them some ground to object. Uh, I think that they should have more ground to object than, uh, than bakers in the commercial sphere. David. Um, on the free speech area, the, the court has long said that aesthetic expression is protected free speech. And so the question comes down to whether you're offering a generic service like cakes on the shelf or whether you are actually uh, aesthetically creating something individual. And that, that's the difference, I think, that they will go case by case to determine. There's also a non-constitutional way of solving this thing, and that's the difference between um, making, an offer, making an offer for a contract or inviting an offer. When you put up a bunch of cakes, you are making an offer. I'm going to sell you these cakes for 8 or 10 or $12. If you say, I will, I will make a custom cake, you're inviting an offer. You're inviting a discussion, a, a contract negotiation. And on those grounds, I think a lot of these, these cases could be solved. I've never heard that particular point framed by a contract law. That's very interesting. Who else? 
right here, fourth row. Hi, I'm Bob Trento. Uh, I'm just wondering if the panel would like to discuss a little bit the effects on society that Janice is going to have. I was pretty excited about the whole case. I'm, I'm hoping you're going to tell me that there'll be less money going from public unions to, the, to Democratic politicians or leftist politicians and, and maybe weakening the position of unions. Uh, that's been seen in a number of previous uh, situations where um, states have changed their law uh, to forbid agency fees in the past. There was a diminution of union membership, and the unions, of course, are afraid of the free riders where the members of the bargaining unit will get all the benefits of, union, of the union representation without having to pay any. On the other hand, what the unions are doing in response is perfectly commendable, I think, and that is they are now actually speaking to their members. They, <laughs> they are now trying to tell them why it is valuable that we should be your representative. The coercive element of union representation is going to be lifted by this case, and unions might become a much more healthy and beneficial element of our economic landscape. To put a finer point on that, David, what is the evidence that we've seen in the 28 states that did not have the law that was struck down in Janus? Certainly public sector unions haven't gone away in those states, but how do they operate? Because presumably that's what will happen now everywhere else. Right. So Dan DeSalvo of, uh, of, um, uh, in New York, CCNY, has done a lot of work on, these, uh, on this. Um, uh, gener generally speaking, in the 28 uh, states, they have a far lower percentage of union representation. And, of course, by having a lower percentage of union representation, their leverage on making public policy is, is lessened. So they tend to, and this is quite an overgeneralization, but I think it, Dan will support me on this, they tend to be focused on true collectives uh, bargaining uh, situations and not on political, because that, that they can go to their membership and say, we've got you the meat. Right here, third row. And Bob, don't worry. If no one has a question for you, I'll, I'll, I'll have one. Everything I said was correct. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gerald Chandler, primarily for Mr. Berg, but for everybody. Can you expand what, this is an opinion piece for you, what do you think should be uh, constitutionally or by law protected? Should restaurants be able to reserve, uh, refuse service to people based on politics? But that's just an example. Where should the boundary be? Uh, are you asking me as a policy matter, or? I'm asking you your opinion as to what you would like to see the law. Uh, well, um, I mean, I, th I, I think and, uh, that there's, there are good reasons to have anti-discrimination laws uh, with respect to some of the classic categories. Uh, I think you always have to ask whether uh, whether there are reasons for re restricting freedom of contract. Uh, I'm not a libertarian, so I, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that the, the market does, I'm not confident that the market sorts out all of these issues, and so I see a role for anti-discrimination law. Uh, I do think that the free exercise of religion is a, a constitutionally recognized, fundamental competing interest uh, and that you know you need to have uh, uh, protections 
um, for both. So I would draw the line uh, in the nonprofit sphere uh, to, uh, to, to give religious nonprofits a pretty broad ability to follow their mission. In the commercial sphere, I would uh, draw the line more narrowly. I do think in, in both cases though, the market can be a solution or a partial solution to these problems. If people can get the goods easily from other places, then that is a reason not to impose upon the conscience of someone who has a religious belief that is constitutionally recognized. That, that gets called in the free exercise context. You hear that, I was gonna say to the other panelists, you hear exactly the same uh, language, of course, in the religious context of weaponizing the First Amendment on behalf of religious conservatives. There, uh, there are articles saying that the free exercise clause has been Lochnerized. Uh, and I think that's just in, inaccurate. Uh, the market plays a role in mediating these disputes and making it possible for both sides to live uh, together. That doesn't mean that, uh, that market analysis is the only thing to consider in these cases, but it is a reason why there may not be a compelling interest in forcing uh, service in any particular case. Anyone else want to draw a line or slice, slice a cake or anything? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'll have a question for Bob now. Um, or unless, does anyone have a question specifically? For, okay, here we go, right here. Okay, I got a question for him too. No, that's fine. Well, we'll tag it on to the end of the, his answer to this gentleman, maybe. Hi, Mr. McNamara. Um, you, you're part of the Institute for Justice. Uh, in my retirement as a second profession, I became a DC tour guide. And I took the test that was overruled by, I believe, your group going to the uh, D.C. circuit. Um, and I think, you, I think the main argument was that D.C. failed to show a compelling interest of the need to test people in order to be good tour guides, in order to provide a service that was worth what people were paying and so forth. But you still have the New Orleans case, I think, in the Fourth Circuit that took the opposite side. Is there, have you guys, uh, is there some potential for the case actually being heard in the Supreme Court? Yes, uh, so there, there is an active circuit split on the constitutionality of tour guide licensing and IJ being IJ, we continue to press forward. Uh, just a couple of months ago, we won a trial in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, that, where yeah. the district court struck down Charleston's tour guide licensing law. Again, because the city was unable to muster any evidence that mandatory licensure was necessary. Uh, the city's argument in these cases boils down to, we make people give a test because we feel like that's a good idea. and. You find they don't work very hard on what goes on the test. Uh, they, they aren't sure why they test certain things. And mostly it's, it's an assertion of government power for the sake of government power or to protect a particular insider group uh, within the city. So we're pressing those cases ahead. Uh, it's not clear yet whether Charleston is going to appeal, which would give us another vehicle for the Supreme Court. I'm trying to talk them into it if they're watching. Uh, but we, we're certainly pressing ahead on every available. Wait, did approach. I miss this? Did, do we need to file an amicus brief? When, when, when does this do? Uh, well, they, they haven't appealed yet, but I, oh, I see, certainly I see. call okay. you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're, we're willing and able. We'll, yeah. David, you want to say something? And then oh, there, there's a hand question. right at the back. That'll be the next uh, question. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Bob, in your article, you made uh, uh, a, a major uh, point that I'd like you to expand upon. Uh, you said that the line is not between professional speech and non-professional speech. That's out. The line is between conduct and speech. 
and certain conduct, a certain speech takes on the elements of conduct and hence regulable when it's tied to a specific kind of profession, what we would call intimate or professional conduct. So there are certain levels of regulation of lawyer speech with face-to-face clients, particularly that the state can impose. So my question is, first of all, please expand on that conduct uh, speech distinction and then apply it to the question on the other side of the abortion issue on when the state requires the abortionist to hand the woman an informed consent, what they call an informed consent document that lists all the possibilities for adoption, lists the age, uh, the, the, the age of the unborn child, lists the potentiality of the unborn child reaching terms. So on those kind of uh, regulations, how would you uh, analyze those? Sure. So the the line that the Roberts Court has been very clear on in the First Amendment is that the relevant distinction is between speech and conduct. Uh, and the court has laid out a very simple test uh, that frequently lower courts decline to follow for reasons passing understanding. Uh, but the the move the Roberts Court has made that I think makes the analysis much easier and makes it correct is that the focus in deciding whether or not something is protected speech is not actually on what the individual is doing. The focus is on what the government is doing. And the Roberts Court, in a case called Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project, tells us that you look at what the government is doing and specifically at what triggers the government's regulation. If what triggers coverage under a statute uh, is conduct that consists of conveying a particular message, then that statute is a content-based regulation on speech. And the easiest way for me to understand this is by talking about doctors. Uh, A doctor who who gives you advice, who tells you taking this pill might help you, is engaged in speech. And if he is being punished for giving that advice because of the content of that advice, he's engaged in speech. A doctor who writes you a prescription for a pill uh, is not being punished for his speech. What the government is interested in when it regulates giving a prescription is the legal effect of the prescription, uh, which gives the person who has the prescription the right to access a controlled substance. Uh, So a prescription consists of words on a piece of paper, But a restriction on writing prescriptions isn't a restriction on speech. Uh, That's the basic line the Roberts Court has drawn. That's the line we we continue to litigate about, and that is the line in the First Amendment context where I think you're going to see most of the action in the next 10 years, which is drawing the line between speech and conduct. Uh, In terms of the, the informed consent requirements, I think those ultimately are going to come down to the facts of the case. Uh, you can certainly see a requirement that makes it illegal to give someone an appendectomy without making sure that they understand that this involves their appendix coming out. That's a restriction that survives strict scrutiny. Uh, And I think the question boils down to how controversial the information is, uh, how accurate it is, how closely it's tied to the actual physical conduct the doctor is undergoing. Uh, But those are things that are going to have to be litigated fact by fact and case by case. Thanks. Hi, I'm just wondering for Bob and anyone else who wanted to weigh in, what have you seen as a result of the um, as a result of the California case? What have you seen California and other states with similar uh, professional speech um, language do in response to the to the um, decision? 
right, including those okay. that are regulating the speech of the abortionist is the, you know, the, the, the flip side. So there really hasn't been time for any legislative response. I think it's fair to say that mostly what we have seen is, is a kind of stunned silence. Uh, when NIFLA came down, IJ was in the midst of briefing two separate motions for summary judgment in two different occupational speech cases. Uh, and in one of them in Florida, the government just didn't file a reply after NIFLA came down, um, which I think tells you exactly what Florida thinks that case means. Uh, and really, I think the proof is going to be in regulatory actions in the next couple of years. Uh, right now, in cases in active litigation, you're seeing a, a clear acknowledgement on the part of government attorneys that this is a game changer, that this is undermining the positions they had previously taken in the case. And the thing we have not yet had time to see is what our legislature is going to do and what our executive officials in the state's going to do in terms of enforcing these laws now that they know they don't have a, a First Amendment free zone to fall back on. Right here, fourth row. Hi, my name's Bill Hagan. <clears throat> I was just curious, in terms of the licensing, and I support the Institute of Justice's general approach to, to, to these types of cases, where, where would you say, the, is it just come down to a case of where the government would have to show that there is a, a real solid reason for licensing someone, like licensing a, a doctor or, you know, is going to you know, uh, perform surgery as opposed to uh, someone who's going to write an article about um, how to, uh, you know, do tax planning more efficiently? More. What would be the criteria that you think would justify um, uh, you know, licensing someone to conduct an activity. More, more broadly, what effect does this decision have on the larger debate over occupational licensing since everything is run through the First Amendment these days? So I, I think there are two answers, uh, and mostly it's that not everything is run through the First Amendment. I think the First Amendment implications are mostly going to be in the application of a license. It's rare to find a licensing scheme that regulates only speech. Uh, I think tour guides are the best example. All tour guides do is tell stories, so you have a straightforward First Amendment case there. Most licenses are going to regulate uh, a mixture of speech and conduct, and the First Amendment is really going to come up in specific applications. Uh, you're not going to see a broadside First Amendment attack on lawyer licensing, uh, but there are certainly applications of lawyer licensing requirements that are aimed, that could be aimed purely at speech, at nothing more than ordinary advice as given in between ordinary people. Uh, and those would violate the First Amendment. Those would trigger First Amendment scrutiny. But the First Amendment is not the only part of the Constitution. It's an important part of the Constitution, but a lot of fights about licensure are going to continue to happen under the 14th Amendment, under the Equal Protection Clause, under the Due Process Clause. And really the question there, as we're seeing playing out in the federal courts and in the state courts under state constitutions, is whether the government is acting to prevent a real harm uh, and whether the government is doing so in, in a reasonable way. Uh, what you see in a lot of these cases, uh, most recently in the federal courts in the Fifth Circuit, uh, addressing Louisiana's restriction on casket sales. Uh, Louisiana law made it illegal to sell caskets without being a licensed funeral director uh, and had no other rules about caskets. Uh, it didn't regulate what they were made of. It didn't require people to be buried in a casket. Uh, and the Fifth Circuit said, 
it's totally implausible that this has any relationship to public health or safety. So while the First Amendment is important and NIFLA is certainly the blockbuster, I don't think the First Amendment is the only tool to evaluate occupational licensing, and it's certainly not the only tool we use to litigate about occupational licensing. My former legal associate. Yes, thank you. Uh, I had uh, some questions on some follow-up cases for Janice. Um, first, there's, I believe, a class action to try to recover the uh, agency fees that had previously been given to unions that were not uh, consented for. And the second is that I've heard some lawsuits against state bar associations where they compel fees for that and then they take public policy positions. Right. Uh, I, I don't have a prediction on what the, the class action will be, though it's plausible. More plausible is the uh, required fee for, uh, for bar, bar passage, and I would not be surprised if that's going to have to pass. Uh, that, that's going to have to be struck down, and that would be good because they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have time for one more. All the way at the back over there. Well, not all the way, penultimate row, I guess. Uh, David Schneer, Free Market Environmental Alliance uh, Clinic. Uh, let me uh, pose a hypothetical to Mr. McNamara. <clears throat> Under the Freedom of Information Acts of the states, the states compel uh, uh, university professors working at state universities to produce information. And my question comes in, is this, could this be viewed as a uh, compelling speech in the, in the form of uh, producing materials uh, in line with the notion that you had that that, that kind of com uh, compulsion is inappropriate under the First Amendment. And silence being a form of speech is another form that those professors might wish to take. I, I certainly think silence is a form of speech. Uh, I used it for the first half of the Q&A. Um, <laughs> but I also think there is a useful line to draw between compelled speech and forced disclosure of documents that already exist. Uh, I think the line to look at is whether someone is being compelled to communicate a message, uh, to write an email, to say something, uh, or whether someone is being compelled to uh, turn over a server or turn over certain files that have certain keywords uh, in the same sense that uh, a there is, to, to draw an analogy, there's a distinction between uh, compelling someone's testimony in court and compelling someone to produce documents in court. You have a Fifth Amendment privilege against things that are testimonial, not necessarily a Fifth Amendment privilege against handing over things you have in your possession. So I think there may be objections to that, but I'd be a little skeptical of the First Amendment claim there. Right. All right. I'm afraid we're out of time now. And before we thank our speakers, I'd just like to let you know that lunch will be served on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. There are restrooms on your way, both on the first and second floor. Uh, there we will resume with our next panel on federalism and government structure at 1 p.m. sharp right back here. And with that, let's thank our panel. <laughs>